We come now to God's word. So I invite you to be looking at Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6. Our scripture reading this morning. This is a continuation of what we were looking at in one sense last week out of Psalm 32. It's the subject of confession. And so this morning's title is The Sin We Confess. So God's word, Psalm 51, verses 1 through 6. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Let's pray. Father, again, we appeal to your Holy Spirit to be the one who is our true teacher with respect to your word. We know the scriptures have been given to us, breathed out by you, for the purposes of correction and teaching and reproofing and training in righteousness so that each one of us may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that you would call us to. And so we come before you now uh, to listen to your scriptures, mindful of the purposes for which they have been written, praying that you would teach us sound doctrine, that you would correct our lives in the direction of greater godliness, You would reprove us in areas that are deficient. And that you would thoroughly equip us for every good work such that we're truly trained in the kind of righteousness that is godly living that pleases you. Lord, we ask for this because in following Jesus, it is our desire to honor him and to honor his name and how we live. So, Lord, bless us this morning with that enabling grace that keeps us attentive upon your word so that we can be equipped and fed and motivated to serve you in those ways that bring glory to your name. This we ask in the name of Christ. Amen. So this morning, as we we begin teaching on this psalm, just the first six, six verses, I want us to remember some things. Um, I want us to remember, and this relates to something Stu prayed earlier, I want us to remember that you and I are not called to be world changers. Very few people in the history of the world have actually been in those high places of authority and influence through which they've actually changed in some manner the course of history. We can be thankful to God that that's not us and that we don't carry that kind of responsibility. The truth is we have something far more significant in terms of who we are and in terms of our calling and purpose. We have been called to be worshipers of the living and true God in and through the person and work of his son. And that is his primary, that is our primary calling. And 
unless we get that right as Christians, unless we are thoroughly grounded in how our preeminent purpose is to be those who worship the living God in and through the person and work of Christ, unless we're thoroughly grounded in that, thoroughly understand that, our earthly purposes are going to lack the power and perspective that they need for us to fulfill them. Jesus spoke of us as disciples and said, salt of the earth, light of the world. But unless we're first grounded in this primary purpose, which our catechism describes this way, that our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, unless we're grounded there first, we're going to truly lack all that we need to be purposeful witnesses to this world. That's where we begin. That's the overarching concern as we continue to study this subject of worship. Now, last week we were looking at Psalm 32. And as we focused upon Psalm 32 in the context of our first and foremost purpose being that of worshiping God, we moved from the adoration of God to the theme and subject of true worship through true confession of sin. The main idea that we were motivating out of Psalm 32 last week, the main idea was this, that true biblical confession, true biblical confession of sin is always a gospel confession. And we explained what this meant using Psalm 32 as our primary text. We emphasized that a gospel-based confession of sin is an act of deepest worship which will always point to how the, the grace of God in our salvation magnifies the praise and glory of God. And we concluded that teaching with some practical statements about how gospel confession is a means of gospel grace in our lives. That is, when we genuinely confess our sin before God, That is a resubmission and a recommitment to God's ways in our lives. It's a recommitment to live for the purpose for which Christ has redeemed us. Now, I'd like us to assume all of that as we come to Psalm 51, which in terms of the the book of the Psalms is really the, the second most significant confession psalm. Because with respect to confession and the confession of sin and worship, there's more to learn. There's a, a greater understanding that we that we need that this psalm specifically addresses, and that concerns the matter of sin. Psalm 51 adds depth to our confession of sin because it takes a deeper look at the nature of sin before God. And so I can sum up this morning's message and lesson particularly this way. The deeper you and I can grasp the nature and evil of our sin, the greater the truth we grasp concerning the mercy of God in Christ. That is to say, we will understand how deep and great the mercy of God is in Christ to a much better extent when we have grasped the nature and the evil of our sin 
as it's committed in the presence of God. Now, as I said earlier, we're going to look at only at the first six verses. But these six verses can be structurally outlined as five significant ideas focusing upon the idea of sin. So in the first place, sin is that which needs to be confessed. Secondly, sin must be owned. Thirdly, sin is against God. Fourthly, sin is original as well as actual. And then lastly, sin is opposite to the very will of God. So let's begin with this first idea that sin needs to be confessed. And that's the general teaching that we find in verses 1, 2, and 3. Because there we have the testimony of David with respect to what he had to do with his great sin. You see, because there's an abundance of mercy and steadfast love with God in Christ, our sin needs to be confessed to God. Let me just make this really clear. Only God can do with our sin what needs to be done with our sin. You see, there's nothing else that you and I can do with it. We can't make up for it. We can't atone for it. We can't cancel it. Sin is an indelible part of our history. It too often lives on as part of our legacy. It sullies our reputation. It inheres and corrupts our character. We can't alter this. We can't change this. We can't make up for this. There is only one thing that we can do with our sin, and that is to confess it to God. We can only appeal to the mercy and steadfast love of God. Again, only God can do with our sin what needs to be done with our sin. And that's the understanding that we must have. But there's more. The second thing we need to see is that our sin is against God. And it's against God and only Hold on a second. That's my fourth point. <laughs> I need to say that we need to realize that we sin and we need to realize that our sin is ours, that we have to own our sin. Sin must be owned. And that's what we find in verses two to three. It must be owned by us because it belongs to us and because we are responsible. David says in these verses, my iniquity, my sin, my transgression. David knows his transgression and his sin is ever before him. It's before his memory. It is clear. It is vivid. He cannot suppress it. He cannot deny it. He takes full recognition of it and full responsibility for it. 
he has no excuses. He does not put it off on his circumstances or his stresses or his weaknesses or his bad moments. He owns it as what he's guilty of and responsible for. To confess our sin, we must truly own it as from us. And that's the understanding that we need to have. But there's more going on to our third point and third idea. Verse 4 says that sin is always against God. David puts it this way. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin, in the most ultimate and unique fashion, is against God. Now, here is the most significant moral and biblical understanding. That although David has sinned, in particular, against a husband and wife, Uriah the Hittite and his wife Bathsheba, murder and adultery, his sin was greater as an act against God. Uh, David understood that the law that he transgressed was the law of God. The law against adultery was from God to guard the very sanctity of the marriage relationship and the holy act of procreation. The law against murder was from God, to guard the very sanctity of human life and to protect people from unjust killing and violence. David understood that the people he transgressed were people created by God, who belonged to God, who bore the image of God. The highest command that we have is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. It is the first and greatest commandment. That love, supreme above all other loves and concerns, means that what belongs to God, we must honor and respect and protect. Which means that all of creation must be treated within the scope of our moral duty to love God first and foremost. And of all of the moral power and concern, all of it, all of the moral and power concern of the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves, all the moral concern is actually derived from the nature of the first great commandment, that God is the creator. And all who live, are created by him and belong to him and created for him. By breaking the law of adultery and the law of murder, David sinned ultimately and uniquely against God himself. And that is why God's judgments are trustworthy and reliable and always right and righteous, because God always knows when he sinned against. And God takes up the cause of all those who are sinned against. Because those sins are sins against him as well. The true evil of sin, of every sin in particular, and of all sin taken together, the true evil of sin lies in this. It is against God, ultimately, and uniquely. 
That is why when we confess any of our sins, we both confess to God and we confess that our sin is against God. Our fourth point brings us to verse 5, where we need to understand that David teaches here that sin is original as well as actual. David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is what David is recognizing and confessing. He was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did his mother conceive him. Now, many times in the history of the biblical faith, different persons have tried to read into the statement of David that David was pointed to some kind of sexual sin on the part of his mother, or that sexual sin or sexual love, even in marriage, is somehow tainted with sin. Now, such readings pervert the meaning of what David has said. You see, first off, David was not trying to push off any responsibility for his sin by saying, in effect, well, look at my mother. She was a sinner before me. Because, you see, there's simply no biblical basis for thinking David's mother ever sinned in such a way. David is his father's son. He is the youngest of eight brothers. Scripture in so many places declares that David is the son of Jesse, that David was conceived and born within the covenant of marriage. This is beyond question. Or the other idea, that in some manner the Bible is pointing to sexual love, even inside marriage, as sinful. Again, the Bible has the most extensive listing of almost every kind of sexual sin, and all of them are outside the covenant of marriage. Well, the Bible is clear. The marriage bed itself is undefiled. Rather, David is stating here his knowledge that he, along with every other human being, is conceived into this world, into a state of sin, not a state of innocence. And this is the biblical story of the fall, the story of Genesis 3. As Paul comments on that story in Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12 and following, sin came into the world through one man, the transgression of Adam. And God's judgment followed, bringing condemnation upon all men. And that one transgression of Adam made the human race sinners, sinners from birth. And so Paul speaks to us again in Ephesians chapter 2, in those first three verses, where he says that by nature all human beings come into this world dead in their trespasses and sins, and they are by nature children of God's wrath. Now, this is what we mean by saying that the sin that David confesses here is original. That is to say, the teaching of the Bible called original sin. Not original in the sense that, quote, no one has ever sinned like this before, but rather original in the sense of origins, the root and the beginning of something. And the biblical teaching we call original sin means that sin has its origin in this world in the sin of Adam. 
And that means that we're all born into a state of sin and that we share the guilt and corruption of that sin. We're born with original sin. And in this verse, David is acknowledging that truth. But more than that, David is confessing this truth, confessing original sin, confessing that he shares in the sinfulness of the human race. That's how deeply David understands his sin. He did not acquire a sinful nature. He was born this way. Yet David doesn't excuse himself. He doesn't blame Adam. He doesn't try to get God to see that it's not really his fault, but Adam's fault. He doesn't try to re-describe this reality as some kind of victimhood status. And here's why. Well, let me say it was Dr. R.C. Sproul who helped me to see this most clearly. The Bible declares to us that God made our first parents morally good, even very good. God created our first parents so that in the face of temptation, they would be the best representatives of the human race representing all of us. Now, for all of you who are teachers, you understand what a substitute teacher happens to be. I discovered during my teaching career that not all substitute teachers are created equal. Some were terrible at following the lesson plans that I had prepared. And some could be fooled by students to actually deviate from the lesson plans. And some were simply not very competent. But I had one substitute I could always trust to represent me in the classroom. Mr. Anderson, former coach, former PE teacher, 70 years old, still built like a rock. Not to be intimidated by any student ever. He always completed my lesson plans, and he always left me notes on each class and their activity, what they did that was good, what they did that was bad. I was always pleased to have him as my substitute. I could trust his competency. He was the best representative of me available in the school system as a substitute teacher. Now consider Adam as the substitute and representative on behalf of all the human race. God did not choose a flaky substitute and representative for us. God did not choose in either Adam or Eve human beings who were incompetent. Rather, our first parents were created good, even very good. And God chose Adam as the perfect representative and substitute for the whole human race. In our first parents, we have the exact and precise picture, as well as definitive proof of what you or I would have done in those same circumstances. This is why God is perfectly just to treat us as if we ourselves had done what Adam did, because Adam was our substitute and representative as our covenant head. Now, on this principle of moral substitution, then, God, Adam, represented all of his children 
his descendants in the garden temptation by God's divine appointment. He did what we would have done. And that is why we teach that what David is referring to here, that we, all of us, have sinned and fallen with Adam in his first transgression. Thus, like David says, we are conceived in sin and born into the state of iniquity. Now, if in that explanation you didn't see it, let me point something out to you. This principle of representation and substitution isn't just the way we fell. It is the way and the only way of salvation. Because the scriptures represent Christ as the covenant head of his people, the one who is our representative and substitute in all of the work that he did in living his perfect life and in the very death that he died, making that perfect penalty for sin. So then the meaning of verse 5 here. David is confessing the full extent of his sinfulness. It is original as well as actual. He knows that the principle of sin and the presence of sin have been with him from the very beginning of his existence. And this is why he needs the mercy and steadfast love of God. He has no help within himself. He confesses his utter fallenness. Only God can save him. The only thing David can do with his sin is to confess it. Because the only avenue out is the mercy and the steadfast love of God. And then we come to verse 6, where in what David says in these verses, we see that sin is opposite to God's will. It's contrary to God's will in two ways. It's contrary to God's desire for us, and it's contrary to his design for us. And so verse 6, David writes, Behold, speaking to God, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God delights in truth and wisdom in our inner nature, in our hearts, the spiritual center of who we are. And, and this is what God desires and designs to work in us, truth and wisdom. But sin is the very opposite of this. Sin is a deceiver, not a truth teller. And sin always promotes foolishness, never wisdom. Have you ever heard this three-line warning about sin? Sin takes you further than you ever wanted to go. Sin keeps you longer than you ever wanted to, to stay. And sin costs you more than you could ever afford to pay. That's the deceitfulness and the foolishness of sin. It is always contrary to God's desire and design for us, which is for us to have truth and wisdom within our inner being, to have that moral and spiritual compass that is set on the wisdom of living to the glory of God. Now, these ideas here 
actually take us back to Psalm 32, to truth and wisdom. Remember there that David speaks of how he had been silent about his sin. That is, he actually tried to hide his sin. He tried to cover it up. He tried to be untruthful about what he had done. But God's design and desire is that we would choose truth when we sin and not seek to hide it. And then David describes also the path of wisdom. Actually, it's God who directly speaks within David's prayer to describe this path. Remember, God says, I will teach you and instruct you in the way that you should go. So do not be like the horse or the mule, which have to be curbed with bit and bridle, or they will not come near to you. That is, the way of wisdom is the way of coming near to God, to be taught of God, to be guided in the way that we should go. God does not want us to hide or to deny our sin. God desires for us and designs for us to be truthful about our sin. And then God wants us to be wise, uh, constantly taught and guided and counseled by him so that we will walk with him, that we will go in the way that he wants us to go. These five ideas then about the nature of sin that must always be coordinate when we come to confess our sin before God. We, we always must remember these things in terms of, of what to do with our sin. We can't do anything with our sin except appeal to the mercy and steadfast love of God. Always then to confess our sin. Now, let me wrap this up with a final thought of good news that this psalm teaches us in light of the person and work of Christ. It isn't that God just has a desire and design for this upright, godly heart within. Rather, the whole psalm begins with the premise that what David prays for, the premise that the abundant mercy of God, which comes from his steadfast love, that that is real. The mercies of God, his steadfast love, real, and it's available, and it's offered to every confessing sinner. And that is because God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, not counting our trespasses against us, but rather God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that in Christ we might ourselves become the righteousness of God, the mercy of God, coming then from his steadfast love, has given us Christ to pay the full payment for all of our sin so that we might have God's own righteousness credited to us that we might become the righteousness of God. That is why when we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. That is why if we say we have no sin, 
we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the psalm then reminds us how vital it is for us then to have this deeper grasp on the nature and evil of our sin because it gives us a greater grasp of the depth of the mercies of God toward us in Christ. In order that we would be grounded in the truth, that a gospel-based confession of sin is actually one of the deepest acts of worship. Because that kind of confession and worship always points to how the grace of God and our salvation magnifies the praise and the glory of God. And that is why in our calling to be worshipers of God, we should be faithful daily to confess our sins so that we would be able to say each and every day with the hymn writer, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. O my soul. Amen. Pray with me. Our God and Father, teach us the depth of the truth of what David has written in light of all that has been revealed to us in the scriptures of the New Testament concerning the person and work of your Son to know that our sin has always been beyond anything we could ever do with it. To know that all we could do with our own sin is to make our sin worse. That if we try to deny it or try to hide it, it will simply destroy us everlastingly. But then to see your mercies so abundant because of your steadfast love, revealed to us in Christ that when we confess our sins in the name of Christ, trusting in the person and work of Christ, then you do all that is needed and necessary with respect to our sin. For you have placed it all upon the Lord Jesus. All of our transgressions laid upon him so that we could be reconciled to you. Having the righteousness of Jesus credited to us. Having the gospel rescue us so that we could give you all praise and honor and thanks and glory and worship both now and forevermore. And to know the bliss of this glorious thought that our sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more.
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. In Jesus' name, amen.